before the break, we review briefly the first four spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Uh, we mentioned the first one as being the gift of message of wisdom, the gift of message of knowledge, the gift of faith, which is our spiritual ability to exercise trust and confidence in the Lord. We mentioned the gifts, the, the fourth being the gifts of uh, healing. So we began our study in the first half with the fifth, which is the gifts of miracles, because of the phrase of verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it says to another, miraculous powers. We explain that the word another here indicates that not everyone has this gift. But then, it doesn't also mean that a believer may not have more than one gift. But just to remind us that not everyone has this gift, that's why we have that word another. Then we indicated that it is important for us to understand that miracle is ultimately from God. Although he may use humans or supernatural beings to execute miracles. Nonetheless, they come from him. Now we say this because some uh, take Satan as the ultimate source of miracles. Sometimes we use the term counterfeit miracle because some English versions uh, such as the, as I mentioned, the 1984 edition of the NIV, use that phrase in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. However, we did indicate that the 2011 edition did not use that. However, that we should bear in mind that the issue is doing, uh, it's a miracle that is designed to deceive or to do something. But that does not mean that miracle it's not real. So with, with that in mind, we try to establish clearly uh, that God can bring about miracles through false agents, either to deceive, to harden heart, to bring judgment based on what his plan is. But ultimately, uh, we should know that he is a source of all miracles, and that's why we refer to Psalm 136, verse 4. Because that is the issue. He is the ultimate source of all the miracles. Then we began to look at the fact that the gift of miracles follows after the gift of healing. And yet we know that uh, healing... It's a miracle in and of itself. So how then do we differentiate the two? And we began to show that the way you look at it is that uh, the gift of miracles should be understood as a more comprehensive gift of the Holy Spirit than the gift of healing and that it involves more diverse display of God's power. In effect, while the gifts of miracles include healing, it encompasses other display of God's power that may benefit or harm an individual in the sense of producing judgment on the person. So we indicated that there are at least two miracles mentioned in the New Testament other than healings in the sense of curing uh, sickness that benefit other people. And the one we began with is exorcism, which is a miracle. And we said to show that it is a miracle that our Lord referred to that that way based on the conversation that he had with his disciples who were protesting of somebody uh, doing exorcism using his uh, name in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 39. And that's where we stopped. And that's what we pick up. It reads, Teacher, Jesus uh, said, John, 
we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. So Apostle Paul himself certainly exercised the gift of miracle when he carried out exorcism on the slave girl in Philippi that eventually landed him and Silas in jail because of the agitation superheaded or spearheaded here by uh, the master of the slave girl who saw that the means of his livelihood was lost because Apostle Paul performed exorcism on the slave girl. And I'm referring to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 23. Acts chapter 16. Verses 16 to 23. It is Acts chapter 16. Uh, of course, hold on to Acts. Because the next two passages, will, actually three more passages will still be in Acts. It is, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which he she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So you see, those people who do fortune telling today and still make money, it's nothing new. Now this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. <laughs> Now she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled. In other words, he didn't like that the demons were the ones testifying about what he was doing. So he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the Slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and tried them into, I mean, and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. You know this here? They were driven by their money. It didn't matter that the girl was suffering, it didn't matter. Which is what we see today. People, they want to make money at any cost, they don't think about others. Anyway. So they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in an attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So here, the apostle performed a miracle, but this is exorcism, and that led him in jail. Now, another miracle that benefited others, that is part of the demonstration of the gift of miracle, is raising someone from the dead. Raising someone from the dead. Apostle Peter exercised his gift when he raised Dorcas from the dead, as we read in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 41. Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 41. It reads, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who 
was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. So here, as a miracle, it's not healing. It's actually bringing somebody from the dead. Now, Apostle Paul also exercises gifts of miracle when he raised Eutychus from the dead. As we read in Acts chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. I mean, chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Now, I mean, there are many things when you read through the Bible. You can see pretty much everything that happens in our life. You see examples of that, one way or the other. See, there are people who come to church and they slip through whatever is going on. That's what we have here, an example of it. Now, I think, you know, in my personal opinion and judgment, the way I look at those kind of things, the person is not really serious about the spiritual life. Because if you are, and yet, you know, some of these, some people, maybe those who go for entertainment, they, and they are three or four hours, and they don't fall asleep. Just sit down to hear the word, they go asleep. That tells us your spiritual life. Whether you like it or not, that's what it tells us. So here we see a man where this is the case. Verse 8 reads, There were many lambs, in the upstairs room where we were meeting, seated in a window, was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into deep sleep. As Paul talked on and on. I love that. On and on. That's what some people say. I do. So I say, good, that's fine. <laughs> talked on, on and on, yes? Okay. He said, when he was sound asleep. He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. See, he was there. All others were there glued on what Paul was talking and teaching. But this young man got bored and sleepy. He had to fall out from the window to let us know it is not proper to go where the word of God is being taught and you're sleeping. It's not proper. It says, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. In other words, he, the Lord granted him a miracle, he raised him from the dead. Anyway, we have cited those two examples of gifts of miracles that benefited others. But there is at least one display of the gift of miracles. That harmed an individual. See, so the ones I've shown so far benefited the individuals we use, uh, we use as illustration. But there's one case where it did not. If anything, harmed the person. Now, this was a case when Apostle Paul pronounced judgment on Elemas, who was attempting to disrupt the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the proconsul Sergius Paulus as we read in Acts chapter 13 verses 6 through 12 Acts chapter 13 
chapter 6, I mean chapter 13, verses 6 through 12. It reads, They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But the elements, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemas and said, Now I want you to notice, I want you to be careful, see this, he said, filled, of course he used with the Spirit, but that's the case, he's filled of the Spirit. Now, so that's the state of the, the apostle. Because sometimes people are so, you know, we are so uh, conditioned that they think, people think that if you raise your voice, for example, you cannot be filled of the Spirit. That doesn't mean, that doesn't, it's not necessarily the case. Or if you do something that hurts people, you must not be filled of the Spirit. That's not the case either. It all depends on what's going on. So here we find a man filled of the Spirit. But look at what he did. Verse 9 says, Then again, uh, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked straight at Elemas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, these things are summary. When we read this, remember, this is just a summary. We're summarizing something that happened maybe over hours. And that's where I can... uh, Reconstruct is Paul will say things and explain about Christ and this and this one say oh well don't pay too much attention to that this is really what it is and he will just he say one day he'll rebut them some way somehow and Paul got tired of that and that's when he uh, uttered the words that we are looking at now say verse eleven says now the hand of the Lord is against you you are going to be blind. And for a time, you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, he didn't really, I mean, the miracle that he saw helped him, but that wasn't really the issue here. If you look at what he says, he believed, he believed, because he was amazed with the teaching of the Word of God. What he had was so captivating to him. Now, so elements became blinded, as Apostle Paul pronounced judgment on him. So his being blinded is certainly a miracle that brought judgment upon him. Now, so this kind of miracle is indeed one that is associated with the gift of miracles. So the miracle being a judgment on elements is similar to the plague judgment brought on the Egyptians. Because they are the purpose. The purpose of the miracle of blindness, temporary blindness, is so that this man can see and know that this truth 
that the apostle had given to him is indeed the truth. And so the same thing, God did his miracle in Egypt, first to render Pharaoh stubborn so he can carry out all the rest of his plan, and so that the people will not believe that they have, you get to let them go. So we contend then that the apostle exercised the gift of miracle only that it's with a negative impact on elements. Now, so in any case, the illustration then we have given support our statement based on the evidence in the scripture that gift of miracles is comprehensive. It's a comprehensive gift that involves a more diverse display of God's power so that it will include healing. It encompasses the other display of God's power that may benefit or even harm individual in the sense of producing judgment on a person. So the idea then of diverse display of God's power is implied by the use of the plural miracles. Because it's a gift of miracles. So anyhow, this understanding of gift of miracles then enables us to deal with the question whether the gift is still in existence in the church of Christ at the present time or whether it ended with the early church. Now the question of the existence of the gift of miracles in the church concerns the debate on what is called the cessation of certain spiritual gifts. Now we have dealt, I know it's been a while, we have dealt with this subject in detail. In our story, the introductory part of our study, of the book of Hebrews. So, if you were not here when we studied the epistle, or you may have forgotten what we studied about the matter of cessation of, of spiritual gifts, I suggest you should go to the church website and click on lessons, exposition of lessons, of course, and go to Hebrews, click on lesson 5 and begin there and listen. And you hear all the details of what we're going through about this debate of the certain spiritual gifts stop or then is it continuing. Well, anyway, however, for our purposes of study here, I will give a quick summary of the things that we uh, dealt with in the book of Hebrews. Just a quick summary, uh, but the detail you, you get if you want, like I said, go online. Now the arguments though, used by most evangelicals that take the view that the gift of miracles has ceased are primarily due to that no doubt is called a giant theologian, B.B. Warfield of Princeton Theological Seminaries of the early, of the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s, I think. Now, B.B. Warfield, his argument is given in his book, the title of the book is Counter Miracles. So in it, he states that miraculous Spiritual gifts were given by God, transferred from the earthly ministry of Christ to be, and I'm going to quote him, distinctively the authentication of the apostles. They were part of the credentials of the apostles as the authoritative agents of God in founding the church. End of quote. Now, the ability to bestow a Holy Spirit by the laying, of, uh, laying on of hands recorded in the scripture, he states also, he has this to say, he says, quote him again, to teach us the cause of the gifts of power in the apostles 
apart from whom they were not confirmed, they were not conferred, as also their function to authenticate the apostles as the authoritative founders of the church. End of quote. Now, B.B. Warfield admits that miracles in a limited number continued to the second century when all the, pro- the apostles are all gone. But he admitted it continued to the second century. But in his argument, he said, well, this came from few apostolically trained men that were endowed with the Holy Spirit, such as Polycarp, uh, who definitely we know was the disciple of John, and Ignatius, and some other, uh, a few other uh, apostolic fathers. So he admitted that, yes, miracle continued to the second century, but somehow actually stopped. Anyway, so the work of uh, Warfield, David Warfield, implies that there is only one purpose for miracle. That's what his work comes out to me. However, there are several purposes of miracles that can be derived from the scripture. Since there is no direct statement or assertion that specifically says the purpose of miracles. In other words, you wouldn't go here and say, now the purpose of miracle is this. You wouldn't say it. That's what we mean by that. It doesn't mean that there are no purposes. You just wouldn't see where it says, the purpose of miracle is this. You don't see it in that way. I mean, there are things that says, yeah, miracle is for this and that, but it doesn't say, now the purpose of miracle is this. Anyway, so the, we'll need to look at the other purposes that we can derive from the scripture. First, contrary to the assertion of Warfield, Warfield and those who advance this argument today, miracles in the New Testament serve the purpose of authenticating the gospel message and not the individual human beings. Because baby Warfield says it authenticated human beings, the apostles, as the authority and the founder of the church. I said, no, it's not. Now, even in the case of Jesus, the Holy Spirit tells us through Apostle Peter that his miracles uh, were used to prove that he is the Messiah or to authenticate his divine mission as in Acts chapter 2. Verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It reads, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a, man, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. Now perhaps it could be deduced from this passage that miracles serve to authenticate the appointment of the apostles as representatives of Jesus Christ. It could be. But that will be purely a deduction that is countered by the fact that others who were not apostles, such as Philip and Stephen, performed miracles. You know, if he said, well, it is given to authenticate the apostles. How do you explain the fact that Philip wasn't an apostle. He performed a miracle. Stephen wasn't an apostle. He performed a miracle. So how do you explain that? Anyway, so the point is there's no direct assertion in the scripture that says that miracles authenticate the apostles. If the so-called signs of the apostles, I'm not going to, you don't need, just can write it down if you want to, but that's what we will say, signs of the apostles in Second Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 12. I'm not going to read it. But 
If that passage is properly uh, interpreted, it will be clear that it is not dealing with authenticating uh, the uh, apostles. However, there is a direct assertion though in the scripture that says that miracles serve the purpose of attesting to the gospel message. This, in the passage I told you, we'll come back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4. It is God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now the pronoun it here refers to the preaching of the gospel. So it is to the preaching of the gospel that signs and various miracles testify. Now that miracles serve to draw attention to the gospel message is evident in the scripture. Now when the evangelist Philip performed miracles in in Samaria, the miracles helped to focus people's attention on his message according to Acts chapter 8 verses 6 through 8. I hold on to Acts. I believe about three more passages will be in Acts. Acts chapter 8, verses 6 to 8. It is when the crowd heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. You didn't see the miracle caused them to listen which uh, shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now Peter, you recall we had just uh, looked at it here, he went to Lydda to preach, and there he healed a paralytic, Aeneas. Now the result of the miraculous healing was people believing the gospel. In order to be saved, according to Acts chapter 9, verses 34 through 35. Acts chapter 9, and hold on again to Acts. Acts chapter 9, verses 34 through 35. It reads, Aeneas. Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Enos got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So that's what the miracle did to come to to believe the gospel. Now later, Peter went to Chopper, uh, where Dorcas or Tabitha was raised from the dead. You recall, I'm not going to go through it again, but you can uh, jot it down again. It's in the same Acts chapter 9, verses 40 through 42. We read through 41, but you, now as to verse 42, this is, that's the one I want to look at, just that verse 42, where it says, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. They saw the miracle, they had the miracle, many people believed. So that's, we see the miracles being used to authenticate the message. Now when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary trip, we are told that miracles were used to confirm their message. As in the passage I also have already cited, but this time, let's go back. Look at that one. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Acts 
Acts chapter 14, verse 3 reads, so, so Saul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So this passage is clear then that it is a gospel message that the Lord proved to be true through miracles. There was no authentication of Apostle Paul or Barnabas, the message. So the miraculous signs were for authenticating their message and not themselves. Second though, miracles, especially in the New Testament times, serve to bring glory to God. Now several times in the gospel we are told that when people, when Jesus performed miracles, people praise or glorify God. Take for example, when Jesus healed a blind man in the vicinity of Jericho, the response of the people was praising God, as we read in Luke chapter 18, verses 42 and 43. And hold on to Luke, because I'm going to look at about four passages, I think, in Luke. About, about four passages. Luke chapter 18, verse 42 reads, Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So, miracle led to the praising of God. Thought, Miracles during the uh, Jesus' earthly ministry served to indicate that the kingdom of God has come. So on one occasion, Jesus, after casting out demons, argued that his miracle of casting out demons signified the coming of the kingdom of God as we read in Luke chapter 11 verse 20. Luke Luke chapter 11 verse 20 It is But if I drive out the demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come, come to you so that's what his miracle did to point to that. It is therefore not surprising though that Jesus linked the preaching of the kingdom of God with healing miracles as he sent out his disciples to preach during his earthly ministry as recorded in Luke chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It reads, verse 1 reads, when, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So, here he used the, in sending them out, he gave them that authority to do miraculous uh, things in order to show that yes, their message is true. That the kingdom of God is come here. Fourth, miracles recorded in the New Testament serve the purpose of meeting needs 
of people. Meeting needs of people. Now, while it is not the primary purpose of miracles of Jesus, but all the miracles that he performed, no doubt, met the need of those who were the recipients of his miracles. Now, Jesus, before he healed the blind, blind man near Jericho had asked the man of what he wanted from him. What he needed. What did he want? Now, this is what we do get from that interaction. Go back to Luke chapter 18, verse 41. Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18 verse 41 reads, What do you want me to do for you? What's your need? What do you need? Lord, I want to see. He replied, that's his need. And that's what happened. Because the next two verses indicate that happened. Now when Jesus fed about 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish, there's no doubt that he made the need of hunger that he perceived among them those who come to hear him. For he had, of course, instructed his disciples to feed them rather than sending them away hungry or to fend for themselves as his disciples suggested. This is why I'm of the opinion based on the scripture that if Christians are helping people when you know come of all kinds of trouble caused by, by God's judgment, um, whether whatever it is, that we cannot exclude the gospel. That should be the primary. So if people say, come, bring your food and clothing, but we don't want to hear about the gospel. Sorry, we don't come. Hey, I mean, it's not, I know people, they think you mean by saying that. Wait. Notice the pattern that we've seen with the Lord Jesus Christ is those who came to hear him, those who he said miraculously. So we shouldn't think we just do good as people say, our doing good has a purpose. That purpose is to present the gospel. If you, if, you, if you exclude that, you have nothing. You might as well be a religious group of which many Christian groups are really are. Because they, they want to go where they even they say, don't, no, we don't want the gospel. Don't bring your Bible. We don't want it. Just bring us your food and clothing. And you see what I was talking about the first half about things sound good many times. They did not be legal. So, this is the case. The Lord, all those he fed were those he actually kept the word. That's where he started. So, we see this because of what is recorded in Luke chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Luke chapter 9. Chapter 12, uh, chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Luke chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. It reads, Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. Because eventually, the Lord did the miracle, fed all of them. <laughs> so the purpose 
our purposes of miracles that we have considered them, make the position advocated by uh, Professor B.B. Warfield difficult to sustain since his primary argument is that the primary purpose of, mirac- of the miracles performed by the apostles is to authenticate their authority which is necessary for the founding of the church and the writing of the scripture. Now there are several problems with his argument. Now the most important of course is that there's no one passage of the scripture that teaches this. What he taught, that's not, it's not found in the scripture. At Bezo, uh, this, what he thought could be a deduction following what was said of the purpose of Jesus' miracle. But again, there's nothing in the scripture that supports his argument. Now, we have to understand that it is perfectly valid to derive doctrine from the scripture through deductions. We can do that. But such an approach becomes invalid if there are passages that will contradict the deduce or uh, the doctrine that one deduced as in the case of asserting that miracles authenticated the apostles. We have deduced, we've shown so many passages that contradict that. So, that makes it not valid. Now, that aside, it is our position, though, that since there's no single passage of the scripture that states that the gift of miracles has ceased, and because Apostle Paul had conveyed to the church in Corinth that they did not lack any spiritual gift that will be in existence until Christ returns. Now, you don't have to go there, but we went through, you just can make you a note if you want to, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. That's why we argued, where he said, he's given the church, the church in Corinth, all he gives they need until Christ returns. So if that's the case, I'm not quite sure how the gift of miracle will suddenly uh, uh, stop. So my argument is simply that such thing is not sustained by the scripture. Now, well, we can say for sure that the gift is still there. It may not be common, but it's still there. Now, God determines how any spiritual gift is manifested so that the fact the gift may not be commonly evident does not mean it does not exist. If you go back to what, us, uh, what we studied in Hebrew, you see the origin of that argument is a fight between the Protestant and the Roman Catholics. Their uh, hi- hierarchy about, you know, we did this, you show your, your doctrine, we show us your miracles. And, you know, they find a way to counter each other. Anyway, so you can go back there if you want to. So my purpose, though, is to give, uh, for us, I'm concerned to give examples of the kinds of miracles that have been documented outside the passages of the scripture in the modern times that suggest the existence of the gift of miracles to the present day. That's my only uh, concern now. Now, the, the two examples... I have selected are those concerned those who lived in the time there was much persecution against the Presbyterians in Scotland. Now, I don't know the Presbyterians, I mean, for the most part, not the Presbyterian of today. There's a few, a group of them that still maybe classify the same way, but the rest of them are all mixed up now. But the Presbyterian at that time in Scotland were sound, devoted to scripture, and they saw a lot of things happen. They were persecuted, but a lot of things happened. So the example that I will cite, of course I also reported in the book I've referred to several times, 
Scott's Wordies by John Harvey. My first example is John Wells of Air that uh, he lived between 1570 and 1622. That was a Scottish uh, Presbyterian leader. He, of course, led a rebellious life, joining a band of thieves, but later he got converted. Now, he had an effective ministry of defending the truth of the scripture against those who ignored and all misapplied the scripture. Now he seemed to have had the gift of prophecy as well, judging from the fact that there are reported cases of him uttering prophetic words that were fulfilled. For example, he predicted the death of two ministers uh, by name Patrick Galloway and John Hall in Edinburgh involved in dispute about church government that was fulfilled as exactly as he predicted. On another occasion, when he was a prisoner at Edinburgh, he predicted the death of quote what they call a popish young man who that mocked when uh, mocked him when he uh, presented the truth to those who were at a dinner party with him. Now, and this man was just saying, ha, 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 making fun of the, what he was talking about because he was of the uh, Catholic persuasion, as they say. And so, he made a prediction about him, about him dying. And no sooner did he finish the prediction, the young man died having some beneath the dining table. However, though, the illustration that is my concern is that of raising a young man from the dead. Now, the death was that of a young man towards whom Mr. Welsh had a great affection. After the death of uh, the young man, the body was taken from the bed and put on the floor to get ready to be put uh, his, for them to put his cuffs on a coffin. Mr. Wells pleaded to have some time with the body. He lamented for about three hours, and after uh, 12 hours, uh, his, uh, the friends of the disease came back with his coffin. But he refused to let the body be put in the coffin. Now, even after 48 hours, he still refused for the body to be put in the coffin. Now the people around him says that perhaps he did not believe that the young man was dead. So they called in a physician who confirmed the death of the young man. Now even after that, he did not give up. Instead, he cried to the Lord and eventually the Lord brought the young man back to life. Now this miracle, of course to me, is similar to that of Peter, that resulted in Dorcas being brought to life, or that of Apostle uh, Paul with Uticus. So I am hard-pressed as to how anyone would deny this miracle as coming from God. Now I'm, I'm not so sure how we can easily dismiss this recorded miracle of raising someone from the dead. Now the miracle suggests to me that Mr. Wells had the gift of miracles. Now this reported event happened in the 1600s and not in the early church. So a person will have to explain how such a miracle occurred if the gift of miracles no longer exists. And I have personally witnessed a person raised from the dead. Personally, I've seen that. Now, a second example is Alexander Pendon, also known as Prophet Pendon. That's the word, the name they gave to him. He was born around 1626, educated at the University of Glasgow, 
and an ordained minister that was one of the uh, leading figures in the Covenant movement in Scotland. Now he was also associated with prophetic utterances that were fulfilled. For example, in the year 1684, while in the house of John Sloan in the parish of Kona, at about uh, 10 o'clock, where he was discussing uh, with some men, he got up and warned one of them to flee quickly and hide himself because a colonel was coming to apprehend him within an hour. Now this happened exactly as he predicted. On another occasion, he predicted to a man, uh, to a Mr. Conning, that before the Saturday night that he spoke, that he would be kept from his meeting house, that is prevented from functioning as a pastor of a local congregation, and that happened exactly as he said. Now this notwithstanding, the example I'm interested though is the pronouncement of death of a man who railed against those who suffered for standing for the truth. Now the man railed against uh, one Mr. Richard Cameron who has been put to death because of his stand for the truth. Mr. Cameron was influenced of course by Mr. Wells to become an open air preacher. So he was executed in summer of uh, 1680 because he preached gospel, not this. As Mr. Uh, Hugh railed against such a man, Mr. Brendan pronounced a death sentence on him in that he said, and I quote, and when I, I need to make some uh, comment here because if you take some of these books, like the book I've uh, quoted, if you read it, it'd be very hard to understand because of the way they wrote things. Because they wrote things based on those who have highly, uh, in their mind, highly biblical. Those who know the scripture. And this, I'm going to give you an example of that here. So, yes, I'm quoting. This is what it says. Sir, hold your peace. Air, 12 o'clock, you shall know what a man Richard Cameron was. God shall punish that blasphemous mouth of yours in such a, man, a manner that you shall be set up for a beacon to all such rabshakers. Now, they say you'll know, be uh, set up for a beacon to all, uh, all such rub shakers. End of quote. And you read that, you say, what's rub shakers? This is the way they talked. Because they knew the Bible. And uh, really, that word, rub shakers, if you have the New American Standard Bible or the King James Version, is the name of a commander. Of Sennacherib, who was sent to go and intimidate King Hezekiah and his people. So, anyone that demoralized the people, they described as Rabshakeh. So, you see, that's, so that's one of those things. When you read those things, they, they are very vast in the Bible. Sometimes you read them, you wouldn't understand what they're talking about. Anyway, uh, if you just want to find out, not in the NIV, but you can go back and look at Second Kings chapter 8, verse 17. That's where this word comes from. Anyway, now so in keeping with the word of Mr. Pending, Mr. Who was struck with a sudden sickness and pain throughout his body. Now with his mouth wide open and his tongue hanging out in a fearful manner, and before midnight, he died. Exactly what the man told him. So this pronouncement, in my mind, is similar to the punishment Apostle Paul pronounced on elements. The sorcerer that resulted in him being blind. So, it is difficult to read in this story and not conclude that Mr. Uh, Peden 
had a gift of miracles. So I'm not sure how a person will reject this uh, story as a mere counterfeit miracle or provide any other explanation to this incident. It's true, it happened, it was documented. It's not like they made it up. It happened in the 1600s. It did happen and it's documented, written in the book. It wasn't something somebody made up. Now I could go on and cite other examples of men in this period of history of the church in Scotland that were endued with miraculous power, but the two I have cited are sufficient to illustrate the gift of miracles. Now, like I said, I've known two cases. One of them, I witnessed a person who was raised from the dead. But it does happen. So that means just because we don't see it, doesn't mean it sees existing. It's a gift that God has given to the church for a purpose, and it is given to a few select people. We don't know who they are. But whenever God wants to use it, He'll use it. So all I'm saying is we cannot deny that such a gift exists in the church today, since there's no single passage of the scripture that supports such a conclusion. So anyway, the fifth gift then that we have considered is the gift of miracles. And there's still more to come, a whole lot more. And we'll pick it up by next week. Let's pray. As we close the study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet and you don't have life. You are a religious person. You may even have been baptized. But if you die now, you've been here. Why? Because you have not really been regenerated. You don't have eternal life. And you don't have eternal life because you have not really trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have not really believed in Him. But this is the good news. God loves you. And He wasn't those who say, I love you, and do something that makes you doubt what they are talking about. God loves you. He demonstrated it through action in that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who, because of His love for you, He created hell and knew the awesomeness, the horror of the hell that he created. They didn't want you to go there. So he left all heaven, came down to this planet, took on a human form, and was ridiculed. Even though he taught, he did miracles, to demonstrate that he is the son of God. They came, made mockery of him in all kinds of ways. Eventually they came and arrested him. While they were coming to arrest him, he asked them, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And as soon as he said that, all of them hid the crown. But he gave them permission. They got up. And they gave him permission to arrest him. Because if he didn't want, they would keep saying, I am. And then no one would touch him. But he came to die for your sins and my sins. So that's why he gave, gave himself up. And they condemned him to death. They, he was tortured in the praetorium, tortured by the Roman soldiers who were very cruel, trained at the act of being cruel, that they used whips with spikes on them, so they would hit Jesus, draw. And yet, with all those pain, Christ never even uttered a word. And they led him, him carrying his cross, although he stumbled, somebody had to help him get to Golgotha. They laid him on that cross. And nailed him, and nailed him, and nailed him. How painful it was as he drove those nails through his hands and feet. Because each time they nailed him, my sin and your sin was the cause. Yeah, he didn't cry, he didn't say what. Until they lifted all that, signed the cross on the ground so that he could stand there for some hours. But the last three hours, when my sins and your sins were being judged on the Son of God, it was so unbearable that he let out that cry then, Eli, Eli, Lama my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Who has forsaken that you may be brought in? Who has forsaken that you may have life? How? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? You're going to believe that, as the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believe in him, you have life through his name. If you believe that he died, rose again the third day for your sins, you will be forgiven no matter what sinful life you have lived, no matter how your sins have been. They will, your life will be wiped clean, the sins that you committed, it will be quite clean. And that is an invitation when Christ says, come to him, that you will find rest. So believe in him, and you have eternal life. On the other hand, if you say, well, I don't want to, my friend, you are on your way to an eternal suffering of the type the human mind cannot imagine now. So escape that by faith in Christ. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, continue to cause us as your children to know that you are still exercising your gifts that you've given to the church in the ways that you've seen fit. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen.